The crossing of the Red Sea is one of those stories that from the first moment you hear about it, I think you try to envision it. <laughs> what must have that been like? And different films have tried to give us their own version of it. In the Ten Commandments, we have this picture of uh, Charlton Heston with his staff extended or his hand extended and people crossing through the Red Sea. And then years later, the Prince of Egypt gave us a different way of thinking about what this moment might have looked like. And I was thinking all week, what did this actually look like? We don't actually have enough details from Scripture to know everything for sure. Uh, so I went to uh, a source that I thought must know a lot of things. I went to artificial intelligence. There's a, there's a website called Wonder AI, and how this website works is you type a sentence, a phrase, a series of words into a box, and within seconds it generates a piece of art based on what you just said. And so this is exactly what I typed into the box. Moses and the Israelites crossing the Red Sea on dry land with walls of water around them, while Pharaoh and his Egyptian army and chariots are chasing them from behind. Do you want to see what AI came up with? <laughs> Here's AI's drawing. And what I found most interesting about this drawing is that AI, as brilliant as it's supposed to be, could not comprehend the idea of them walking on dry lands. So it showed the Israelites in a boat escaping from Egypt. That's why the pyramids are in the background. And I think sometimes people get to this story and they just kind of wonder about stories like this. Is this for real? Like, did this really happen? This has got to be an allegory or a metaphor. This, is, uh, this was their imagination. And so when we come to these stories, it's, it's important for us to approach them and ask some good questions about them. And I just want to say up front, we don't know everything about the location of the Red Sea. There's a, a lot of different opinions by biblical scholars and archaeologists and commentators. We don't know exactly where the Red Sea was located, but we do know that the water was so deep and so wide that you couldn't walk across it or swim across it. And we also, knew that the, we also know that the water was deep enough to drown an entire army. We also know this, that the Lord led Israel to the Red Sea. Now, in the future, in the rest of the book of Exodus, they're going to do a lot of wandering, actually 40 years worth of wandering, mostly because they're sinful, and they kind of sin their way into their lostness. But here, that's not the case. God, in his sovereignty, leads them to a place where they find themselves in a crisis, and they're not there because they messed up. It's not, they're not there because of something bad they did. They're there because of something good God wants to do. And I just want to pause and say, you might find yourself in a crisis moment in your life. You might feel like you're looking at a Red Sea, that there's no way through. And I just want to encourage some of you to know that it's possible that the Lord has brought you there to show his power in your life. It's possible that the Lord is at work. Even in the crisis moment, God is still at work. It's part of his plan of deliverance. I want to look at Exodus chapter 14, verses 10 through 12. It says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. Remember, the Israelites were sent out of Egypt, and now Pharaoh is coming after them again. And it says that they feared greatly. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is it not what we said to you in Egypt, leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. It would be easy for you and me to look at this and be like, man, these people have no faith. 
They got no belief. They got no backbone. What's up with these people? But it's easy for us because we know the end of this story. But they didn't know the end of the story. They looked behind them and they saw the most powerful army coming after them. They looked in front of them and they saw a body of water that they could not get through. They saw no way through. And I know just from being a pastor and having conversations with so many of you that many of you are facing really difficult things in front of you and behind you. Even the last few weeks, I just wrote down some things that have come up in conversations that I've had with people in our church. Some of you are facing disease, sicknesses, diagnoses, prognoses that are challenging. Some of you, it's relational crisis. There's struggles in your marriage. There's struggles in your home. There's a lack of stability in your home. Some people are feeling the loss of hopes and dreams. Other people, it's financial stresses or big career work-related decisions in front of them. For some people, it's just simply a lack of inner peace. They're weighed down by their anxieties and their worries. There's emotional struggles. There's mental health battles. There's painful loss. A family that our church loves very much is walking through an unbelievable grief right now in the loss of their 38-year-old son and brother. And we look at those circumstances in front of us, and the question that we often ask is this, how do we get through it? How will we get through? And I want to bring us back to the text, and this is going to be the outline for our time together this morning. Moses' answer to the Israelites, verse 13, Moses said three things, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. Fear not, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians, whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. So our three points this morning are right from the text. Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord. Let's just remember where we're at here. The Israelites have been in bondage to Egypt for 400 years, and God intervenes by sending his deliverer Moses and Moses' uh, helper Aaron. God sends the 10 plagues. We talked about that last week, and then by the end of the 10 plagues, Pharaoh begs the Hebrews to leave. He sends them with the blessings and the financial resources of Egypt and even some of the Egyptians because they've seen that there's only one true God go with the Israelites. Well, then what happens next is Israel heads out into the wilderness, possibly two million individuals trying to travel together, and they take a very strange path. God is leading them, but he's leading them not in the most direct path. It's not the way your GPS would take you there. God's got a whole different plan because he's trying to keep them from certain enemies that he know will put too much fear into their heart and will cause them to fail. And Pharaoh hears about the wanderings of the Hebrews in the wilderness. To his, from his perspective, it sounds like they don't have a clue where they're going and what they're doing. And then Pharaoh has sudden remorse because Pharaoh in one day lost 600,000 men who were building his empire for him. And he says, what have we done? What a mistake have we made? And so he gets together what would have been the greatest military technology of that time, the chariot. He gets 600 chariots, and he begins to chase after Israel into the wilderness. And they lift up their eyes, and they see him, and their response is exactly what my response and your response would have been, fear. It's interesting that in the Bible, when God shows up to people, whether it's him or one of his messengers, very often the very first two words he says is, fear not. I think it's partly because we're fearful creatures. We are. The first emotion most babies experience is fear. What happened? Where am I? What's going on? That's fear that you're hearing. 
often in the first cry from a newborn child. Fear. I want to talk about what fear does to us because in the midst of our fears, God comes and says, fear not. And actually in the Hebrew language here, this is more of a rebuke than anything. He's using very strong language to say, do not be afraid. And there's a few things that fear does that we have to be aware of. The first thing is this, fear creates false narratives. It creates false narratives. They said, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die in the wilderness? They've created this entire narrative about Moses' motivations and what's going to happen next. It creates, and we do this because every human being has this unavoidable need to make sense of what's happening when we feel afraid, we need to understand it. And so what do we do? We tell stories to ourselves and we tell stories to others. And so when you're in a season of struggling, you might tell yourself this story. It's always going to be this way. It's never going to get better. This will never pass. When you fail, when you mess up, when you fall short, you'll tell yourself this. That's not just something I did. It's who I am. And a mistake becomes a source of shame in your life. When you're offended and your feelings are hurt, you might tell yourself this story. Well, I, I, I have the right to get them back. I have the right to settle the score. I can respond however I want. When sickness comes to us, we might tell ourselves this. Either I have failed God, and that's why I'm sick, or God has failed me, and that's why I'm sick or struggling. When we're disappointed with life, we might tell ourselves, I deserve this. I've done enough bad things and it finally caught up with me. Or we would tell ourselves, how dare life do this to me? I never would deserve this. So either way, we're always telling ourselves stories and fear creates false narratives. But the gospel of Jesus Christ offers us a better story, a truer story. And it presents to us an author who is faithfully and sovereignly and lovingly writing out the story of our lives. So even when we fear, we can look to the story of who Jesus is instead of creating false narratives. The second thing that fear does is it makes us lash out. Moses, what have you done? <laughs> they turn on him. You brought... Days before, they're like, Moses, you did it. And now they're like, Moses, you did it. Like, same words, different tone. A couple weeks ago, my family and I had a little getaway weekend, and we were in Maryland. And anytime I'm near the shore, I'm looking for seafood. <laughs> and in Maryland, what they're really famous for, amongst everything, is their steamed crabs. And so I wanted these steamed blue crabs. And so we went to a seafood restaurant one night. And we all ordered food, and they said, well, the steamed crabs only come in sixes or twelves. And I was like, oh, poor me. So I, I ordered six of them, six large jumbo steamed crabs. I got a picture of them for you, actually. And uh, we ordered our food. My girls, ordered, my girls don't really like this. Uh, they don't like the work, and they don't like the food. And so uh, they ordered other things. And so all of their food came before mine. They had their dishes, their pastas and their salads and different things for like 10 minutes. And then these six massive piping hot steamed blue crabs hit the table in front of me. And I already knew what was happening. They were half done with their meals and I haven't even started in on this. And they were so hot, I couldn't even put my hands on them at first. I have to wait for them to cool down and then I'm trying to crack them open. If you've ever opened crabs, it's a lot of work. It's labor intensive. I know why crab is so expensive. And so I finished my first steamed crab and I look up and everyone's done eating except for me. And now I have all this fear in me, this fear of like, they want to go, 
They're, you know, I'm, telling my, I'm creating a false narrative. They're frustrated with me. They're, they're anxious. Maddie had bumped her head, and she was upset about something, and I'm thinking, this is a disaster. And so I start going as fast as I can. I'm, I'm, I'm cutting my fingers. I'm burning my hands. I'm sweating. I'm just, like, angrily eating this crab meat that I love so much. And, of course, I'm not going to waste it because it's super expensive. And I'm all in it, and then I start lashing out. I'm like, this restaurant is a seafood restaurant. They should understand that these should come first because these take more more time, and then they should bring your food second, and then I'm getting angry about this, that, and the other. Fear (laughs) makes us lash out. Ever since the fall in Genesis chapter 3, this is what we do. The second things go wrong, we look for someone or something to blame. And often, if you look closely at your fears, underneath it, you'll see that there's something that you have a sort of -of out-of-control love for. And you're afraid that you're losing that thing or that thing is being taken from you. It could be a love of control, power, approval, acceptance, what people think of you. And often in our fear, because we're losing what we love most, we lash out. And when we lash out, fear doesn't just hurt us anymore, right? It begins to hurt others. And yet the gospel of Jesus Christ reveals one who took all of the blame and took all of the shame and never lashed out in the midst of his suffering. In fact, in Isaiah 53, 7, it says this about Jesus. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So Jesus, in his moment of trial and suffering and torture and crucifixion, he never lashed out. He suffered so that he could put to death our fears. The third thing that fear does to us is this. Fear leaves us longing for what we should be leaving behind. They said it was better in Egypt. Now listen, when they're in Egypt, their main job was making bricks. And I did some research into what that would have looked like this many thousands of years ago. And here's what the stages of brick making involved. Ready? Hauling water, hauling clay, pouring and mixing the water and clay, then mixing in the straw, then kneading the mud mixture with your bare feet for a minimum of four days. Then you would allow it to rest, knead it again, then pour the mixture into molds, cut the bricks, put them out in the sun to dry, and then stack them, and then haul the stacks of bricks to a work site, and then lay them with mortar. All of this work done in the oppressive climate of Egypt and under the ruthless abuse of violent taskmasters. And yet, in the midst of their fear, the Hebrews are longing for what they should have been glad to leave behind. This is actually true for you and me as well. Often when we really get afraid, we go back to the things that are familiar even though they enslave us. We go back to things that are predictable, even though in the past they've caused us pain and they'll cause us pain again because it feels safer, it feels more sure. At least we know the price we're gonna pay there. And fear causes us to long for things that we should be leaving. Proverbs 26, 11 says it this way, a dog who returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. So in other words, fear doesn't just make us afraid, Fear makes us foolish. It makes us long for things that we should leave. And yet the gospel brings us the certainty of our salvation, the certainty of our future hope because of the security that we have in Christ. So fear not. The second thing that Moses says here is stand firm. 
It was like a miracle inside of a miracle here, if you don't know the story. The big miracle that we talk about was the parting and crossing of the Red Seas. But there was also this thing called the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And what it was is that there was this massive cloud that would look like a pillar that would go before the Israelites to show them how they should go. And at night, it would turn into a pillar of fire. Now, there are biblical scholars who uh, have tried to explain it away and say there's a natural cause for this. I, this is one of the explanations I read this week, that in the Sinai area, when heavy, when heavy weather was impending, there was a remarkable cloud formation. It was a huge column of cumulus, and it would be black in the center, and it would be white uh, on the edges. It would, it would extend from the ground up into, really, the sky, and it would actually emit lightning, so at night it would appear to be like a blaze of fire. And this commentator is saying, well, this is what it was. This is not a miracle. This is just part of the weather pattern of the desert in Sinai. But the trouble with that explanation is that the pillar moved ahead of them where they needed to go. And when Pharaoh and his army came near, the pillar conveniently moved from being in front of them to behind them. It moved from being a source of direction to a source of, pr of protection. And here's the other problem with believing that this was just a natural occurrence. It remained with them for 40 days. or 40, It remained with them day and night for 40 years. So whether the cloud itself was a natural occurrence, it's fine, but it was a supernatural act of God that caused his presence to go before the Israelites and to move behind them. In fact, for the rest of the Bible, that cloud is considered a manifestation of the actual presence of God. So you see the Israelites here, they have the Red Sea in front of them, they have Pharaoh behind them, they have danger behind them, they have an impassable situation, an impossible situation in front of them, and instead of running, which is our tendency when we feel like we're caught and trapped and in trouble, is to run back and forth. I don't, how many of you are like this, like a little bit like me, when things aren't going your way, you're, if your body doesn't run, my body doesn't run by the way, but if your body doesn't run, your mind runs. Anyone got a mind that runs, and you're trying to control situations and control circumstances and control outcomes? We're running, and in the midst of all of that mind running, God's word comes and says, stand firm. Stand firm. Charles Spurgeon said, it sounds easy, but it's the hardest thing to do. He said it this way. He said, I dare say you will think it's an easy thing to stand still, but it's the posture which a Christian soldier learns not without years of teaching. I find that marching and quick marching are much easier to God's warriors than standing still. Maybe that's why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6, as he talked about the armor of the Lord, said this, stand fast. And after you've done all, stand. Still stand. This is how Spurgeon says it. To stand at ease in the midst of tribulation is to show three things. A veteran spirit, maturity in Christ, long experience. You've experienced the faithfulness of God and so much grace. So much grace to stand firm. I want to encourage you, those of you that feel like you're trapped this morning, to fear not. Stand firm. Stand firm in God. What do we stand firm in? Three things. We stand firm in what God has said. We stand firm in what God has done. And we stand firm in who God is. First, we stand firm in what God has said. The beginning of this chapter, God already told Moses everything he's going to do. He said, I'm going to get you through this. I'm going to get you out of this. God had already told them, I'm bringing you through to a promised land. God had spoken to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and he was fulfilling his promises through the leadership of Moses. And so what do we do in hard times? We stand firm in what God has said. We hold on to his promises, and we live in his truth. There's so many lies that we tell ourselves, and there's so many lies that the world tells us. We need to know his truth. 
This is why we need to be a people of God's word, okay? Reading the Bible every day is not about religious activity. It's not about checking off a box. It's not about earning your salvation. It's not about proving anything to God or to anyone else. You and I need to be in God's word every day because when the day comes that we're standing in front of the Red Sea and we need to stand firm in his word, we need to know his word so that we can stand firm in it. Memorize the promises of scripture. Memorize the truth of God's word so that... In these moments, you can stand firm. All the lies of this world, you, you will not be able to find strong footing in them. Stand firm in what God has said. Secondly, stand firm in what God has done. What had God just done for them? The 10 plagues. He defeated all 80 gods of Egypt through those 10 plagues. He brought them out of 400 years of bondage, and they were forgetting already. This morning, wherever you're at, remember what God has done in your life up until this moment. A year ago, you, wouldn't, you might not have known that you'd be here this morning. Some of you 10 years ago, you wouldn't have known that you would be here five years ago. But you're here this morning and you're still standing and God is still at work in your life because he's faithful in what he's done. He's been faithful. We are where we are by his grace. And, and when we look at the cross, we see that Jesus has done everything that we need to stand firm. And then lastly, stand firm in who God is. Listen, in the worst moments of life, in the darkest moments of my life, there's two questions that have not helped me. The first question is this, what is God doing? And the second question is, where is God? I'm not saying they're not worth asking, but those are not the questions that help me through those moments. Not what is he doing and where is he? Because I didn't always know what he was doing. And to be honest, I didn't always like what he was doing. And I didn't always know where he was at. Here's the question that helped me through those seasons. Not what is he doing and not where is God, but who is God? Yeah. Who is God? It's his character that carried me through those seasons. When I couldn't see what he was doing and I didn't like what he was doing, I didn't try to make sense of the what and the where. I just kept asking my heart and asking the Lord, who is this God? And I began to rest in his, not his workings in that moment, but I began to rest in his character. He's good. He's glorious. He's gracious. He's great. And so I begin to feed my heart with the truth of who God is, and it carries me. Listen, if you're facing things right now and you don't see what God is doing and you can't sense where God is at work in your life, I just want to encourage you to just hold on to this question. Who is God? Is he good? Is he faithful? Is he sovereign? Has he carried you? Will he bring to completion everything that he begins? And the answer, according to his word, is yes. Corey Ten Boom, who was a survivor of the Ravensbrück concentration camp, said this. When a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, it's not the time to throw away your ticket and jump off. What do you do? You sit still and you trust the engineer. Fear not. Stand firm. And then lastly this morning, and I'm going to have the uh, music, musicians join me. See the salvation of the Lord. So God says to Moses, here's what I want you to do. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand. Over the sea, it will divide, and the people will go through on dry ground. Now, let's read this. Verse 21, here's what happens. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea land dry. And the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went 
in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. There's a few things I want us to notice before we finish. First, God used the wind to drive back the sea. Does that, did that jump out at anyone else? He didn't have to. He's God. He could have just snapped his fingers, and it could have been perfectly dry land, big walls of water he could have walked through, and yet God used a natural occurrence in a supernatural way to accomplish his purposes at a specific time for a specific purpose, and that's how he often works. He uses natural things in supernatural ways. By the way, that's good news for you and me because we're very natural, but he can use us in supernatural ways to accomplish his plans and his purposes. And the other thing I love is that it took all night. That was a long night for Israel. That was a long night. All night long, Pharaoh was still behind him. All night long, there was still no way forward. God was taking him through a night where they were learning to trust his timing. All night long, he sent this east wind, and he did this. And one of the commentators said this, God used the wind to drive back the sea. And what this shows us is that God is able to use creation in his plan of redemption. That he, and he also employs a human instrument. By faith, Moses was able to perform the prophetic signs that accompanied, accompanied salvation. So scripture brings together three things here. The natural, the wind, the supernatural, God's timing, and, and the amount of wind and the work of the wind, but then also human. And this is one of the mysteries of God's sovereignty, that he's able to use the world which he has made, even sinful human beings, to accomplish his saving purposes. This, here's what I'm saying. God may have used natural means, but he did it in a supernatural way. Because look at the timing of it, the involvement of Moses. Look at the response of the Egyptians. They're the ones who said, it's the Lord fighting for Israel. Umberto Casuto, the commentator, wrote this. The miracle of the crossing of the Red Sea consisted in the fact that at the very moment when it was necessary... In just the manner conducive to the achievement of the desired goal, and on a scale that was abnormal, there occurred, in accordance with the Lord's will, phenomena or a miracle that brought about Israel's salvation, the Lord, the Deliverer, the way through. And the last thing I want to point out about this is the beginning of verse 21. It says that Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, but it was the Lord who drove the sea back. Now... In 2011, there was a Super Bowl commercial put out by Volkswagen. If you saw it, you probably remember it. I have a screenshot of it. A little boy wearing a Darth Vader costume uh, begins to walk around his house thinking that he has the force, the ability to move things with his mind or with his hands. And so in this commercial, he starts, he walks up to this elliptical machine, he puts his hands up and he's trying to make the elliptical move. Then he goes to his golden retriever dog on the ground, tries to get his dog to do something. Then he, there's a doll on a bed that he's trying to move. And then the last one is he's sitting at lunch and his mom's got a sandwich on a plate over there and he's trying to pull it over to himself. And he's really discouraged because he's got the costume but not the power. Then he goes out to the driveway and they got a new Volkswagen and he stands in front of it and he puts his hands up like this and his dad watching from the window has the remote control and his dad starts the Volkswagen and the boy does this and the Volkswagen begins and the boy jumps back. And he looks at his hands like, wow, I have real power. I thought of that 
all week as I've been reading this story. Moses is that little boy. He's got his hand stretched out. But God is the one who does the great work. God is the one who does the greater work. And Moses is not the hero of this story. Moses is a wonderful character, a wonderful man, in many ways worth imitating, but not in every way, of course. We'll learn that. But he's not the hero. God is the hero. And that's the story of Scripture. There's not a collection of heroes. There's one hero. God is the hero. And thousands of years after this, there's a better Moses. There's a greater Moses. There's a truer Moses. Moses might have led Israel through the Red Sea on that day, but Jesus, the greater Moses, came not just to lead people through a literal sea, but to lead us right through the sea of death, to lead us through life and to lead us through death. God gets the glory over Pharaoh here, but Jesus got the glory over all the Pharaohs of this world, over all the Pharaohs of our heart that we would be bound to and serve. And Jesus' victory was not through an amazing moment of power and wind and, and the movements of water, but Jesus' moment of glory was one actually of unthinkable suffering, torture, and defeat as Jesus went to the cross. Here's, here's what I'm saying. We can find a way through every Red Sea because Jesus went in for us. See, Jesus willingly, sacrificially, and substitutionally, substitutionally went into the sea of death and hell so that you and I could walk through any storm, walk through any sea, and know that the answer to the question, is there a way through, is always yes. It's always yes, because there's a greater Moses. His name is Jesus, and he makes a way for us. Let's pray together this morning.